And welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, and uh, Scott Brown with me on this edition of the program. Uh, we'll bring him on in just a second, but I'm going to piggyback on the Austin Duncan controversy concerning family-integrated churches and ministries. Austin Duncan, college pastor at Grace Community Church, youth pastor, 25 years, and uh, kind of threw a little bit of a hand grenade into the mix on the question of family-integrated churches via his podcast. and. Well, we've got to be cautious when we hit some of these controversies, certainly. And I want to give some comments up front, and then we'll bring Scott Brown on to talk to this, who is the Church Family Life Director and uh, what used to be the National Center for Family Integrated Churches. But we want to get into this issue. And to be clear, we have to be cautious that we're not drawing straw men and caricatures into these debates and disagreements that happen within the church, the intramural discussions and disagreements that go on within the church, and they're important. I think they can flesh out some truth in the process if we're willing to listen to each other and work through these things. So the first thing I did was go to Scott Brown's website, the Church Family Life Organization, and uh, pulled off the propositions, the statements. And these are solid, well-thought-out statements. I was pretty impressed. I think I've seen some of this uh, through the years, but uh, this probably is revision 47 or something like that. So uh, just just to give people a sense for what's happening, of course, our desire is to see the reforming, the reviving of the church and to get back to biblical standards. I think that's everybody's desire. But what are those biblical standards? And that's the question we're going to ask on this edition of the program. And here are a couple of the proposition statements from the Church Family Life Organization. We affirm that the gospel may divide families because the gospel can set a man at variance against his father. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and that we ought to obey God rather than man if there be any conflict between the commands of a husband or parent and the commands of God, etc., And then secondly, we affirm that there is a clear and consistent biblical pattern of worship and discipleship for the people of God that is age-integrated. And we believe that this pattern should be embraced and practiced. And the references are plentiful, Exodus 12, 21 to 27, Deuteronomy 69, 14, Joshua 8, 34 to 35, 2 Chronicles 20, 13, Ezra 10, 1, Nehemiah 8, 2, 12, 43, Joel 2, 15, 16, Acts 27, 12, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, 17, 11, 1, 2. Also 12, 20, 12, 26, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, Philippians 3, 7, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 14, 2 Timothy 1, 13, 3, 15 to 17. Again, these are the passages in Scripture that basically say, hey, kids are involved in the church. They're there. Uh, the church has been age-integrated, Old and New Testament, uh, no, no difference as we proceed through church history. And uh, so we affirm that there is a clear and consistent biblical pattern of worship and discipleship for God's people that is age-integrated. We deny, reject that there is any clear positive and scriptural pattern for, or a positive institution for creating distinct age-segregated cultures in the church through age-segregated worship, systematic, comprehensive age-segregated discipleship. Also, we affirm that the church and the family are designed to be a complementary, compatible, and harmonious because the family is commanded to raise godly seed for the next generation and is the proving ground for church leaders. While the church is responsible to give the family her instruction, discipline, protection, fellowship, and worship, we deny, reject that the uh, church and the family have competing purposes and that the church or family may disregard God's command for the church and the family in worship, instruction, discipline, fellowship, 
or missions. And then also we affirm that returning to a biblically ordered, age-integrated methodology for the worship of God and discipleship in a local church is consistent with Holy Scripture and critical for the restoration of the kind of worship and discipleship culture we see demonstrated in both the Old and New Testaments, Deuteronomy 31, 12-13, Second Chronicles 12-13, Ezra 10, 1, Psalm 148, 12 to 13, Matthew 19, 13, Mark 9, 36, 10, 13 to 16, Luke 18, 15 to 17, Colossians 3, 20, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And then finally, we deny, reject that an age-integrated ministry methodology should be the only or even the primary consideration for selecting or for establishing a local church because priority of consideration should be given to the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of sound doctrine, while recognizing that the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Now, that's super balanced. I really like that. So, all right, so that, that's the statement. You can go to churchfamilylife.org to check out the entire statement. So I went through it rather quickly, but I do believe that it's balanced, biblical, thoughtful, somewhat reforming, uh, sets us in a better direction when it comes to the relationship of family and church. So to that extent, amen and amen. A few of my comments as to you know the disagreements that go on between Brother Austin Duncan and others versus the idea that, hey, let's get back to a more historical church approach to the relationship of family and church or a more biblical approach. Uh, wow. What, what can we say about this? Well, a few of my comments up front, and thank you for your patience, Scott, as you hang in there on this. But uh, first, about age segregation, professionalized programs for children and family integrated churches. Let me say this. There is a social construct that's been imposed upon us by the zeitgeist in just, I would say, the last 60 or 70 years. That's really unique in all of world history. And you're not going to see it. Any historian that's studied social constructs and the the modern construct of the teenager, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a modern construct, a new construct that's been imposed upon us by the zeitgeist. And the question is whether Christians should oppose it or just capitulate to it. If you can't fight it, join it, you know, sort of a approach. There are two social constructs developed by God, first of all, and that's family and church. And we know that. But what we need to be clear on is this, the powerful influence of public schools Powerful governments, powerful universities, powerful peer culture, pop culture, extremely powerful pop culture, powerful economic forces, and particularly form of uh, capitalism, all with a strong secular bent has really changed human society in the last 60 years since after World War II. Now, you may assume that the heart of the system is all very good, that the zeitgeist has done almost nothing but good for our human society, or you could be a little more negative about it like me. You know, I mean, those of you who listen to this program know that I'm not exactly thrilled with what the zeitgeist has done to human society in the last 50 to 60 years. And I think I have reason to believe that. The zeitgeist has done to our socioeconomic systems, to the church and to the family, to human society, has been a train wreck. All right, so that's where I'm coming from. So just to immediately capitulate and and form our our programs, our church programs, to the social construct that's been imposed upon us by modern social systems, to me, is something we need to at least question. At least step back and say, I wonder if we're doing the right thing here. 
Okay, here's the second question that comes to my mind. It has to do with scriptural authority. Does the sufficiency of Scripture address this particular issue of social relationships? Or does the Bible mainly speak of a gospel message that sort of saves us from sins and forgives us, but the Bible is pretty silent on matters relating to family and church? I think that is a worthwhile question. The third question is this. Are we straining at gnats and swallowing camels? Are we making too big of a deal out of this, this basic social construct that's been imposed upon us? and applying a biblical standard to the organization of church life. Are we making too big of a deal out of that? That's the third question. I think we need to answer that question. Fourth question is, to what extent do the traditions of men displace the laws of God, the, the will of God, in how he would like his church to function? Fifth question is this, to what extent are we ignoring Titus 2, 2 Timothy functions of the church by introducing all these new systems? The best thing that the church does 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, disciple the young men to disciple their own families and to disciple others, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, and to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.1 and 2. So, so that's what God wants us doing. He's assigned a few things. He didn't say, and oh, by the way, do Sunday schools and youth groups and be sure that you don't you know, neglect to do your summer programs for public school kids, et cetera, et cetera. So, but it does say that we're to disciple the young men, the elders especially, to disciple the young men in order that they might disciple others, including their own families, 2 Timothy 2, to end to preach the word. So a final question is this, you know, we all want healthy churches here. And I think that's what we're really coming down to. We want to be obedient in the discipleship program that Jesus has assigned to us. And we want healthy churches. We want growing churches. We want to be authentic, and we want authentic fruit. I mean, the real fruit, not necessarily self-perpetuating busy programs, the mere appearance of bodies, bucks, and buildings and programs. Uh, We don't want buildings that are mainly scaffolding, you know, so we're doing all this stuff and we're like really impressed with ourselves for doing all this stuff, but there's not really an actual building formed. So I guess my big question is what if fathers actually obeyed Ephesians 6, 4 and Deuteronomy 6, 7? These, I think, are the real questions that Kevin Swanson, Scott Brown, and Brother Austin Duncan need to be addressing. These are the fundamental questions. I mean, really digging down into the the root issues. These are the things we need to be talking about. Scott Brown, Director for Church Family Life. Welcome, Scott. Welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you again. Kevin, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, I just used up 10 minutes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I, I can wax elephants. I mean, I'm I'm good at that. Uh, but, but, you know, Scott, I walked into the largest Christian school belonging to one of the largest churches in the Denver metro area. I was in the administration building of the largest Christian school in the Denver metro area, walked into the lobby, and I saw this behind the desk in the lobby of the administration building of the largest Christian school in the Denver metro. And here's what it said. You shall teach your children God's word as you sit in your house. And I looked around and said, this doesn't look like my house. I, I don't. I don't recognize that couch. I don't. I don't recognize these kids. I, this isn't my family. This is my house. So, what's the problem with this picture, Scott? Yeah. Well, the the problem the problem that all this discussion surrounds is that there were, in my view, there there were two tsunamis that broke on the church. And it altered the worship of God in the church. I, I think these were like rogue waves out in the ocean mm-hmm. of the church. But what happened was, you know, in the 19th century, you had the rise of public education, where for the first time, you know, children were highly segmented. 
into various rooms. The church picked up that pattern and, and churches began to get built according to the public school design. And so you had churches with lots of classes with, with every age group being ministered to. So that was the, the first wave that broke on the church. Yeah. And it altered the way that churches were even built and it altered the staff configurations of churches. And so you had staff to minister to the various subsectors of society. The second tsunami happened in the 1950s. This was the rise of youth culture. Yeah. And, and, the, and particularly the rise of the great youth ministry nonprofits. Uh, that further segmented youth culture and isolated ad- as adolescents as some kind of idolatrous focus. And so, you, you know, adolescents were separated from adults in the worship of God. So you had, you know, massive youth ministries rising. And, and frankly, you know, this was a, this was a, this was a new thing. You, you, you never, there was a, there were new offices that were established in the church. There was the youth pastor. There was the children's pastor. And so these were, these were innovations. These Mm. were. We're trying trying, trying to meet the culture though. We're trying to meet the culture with where the culture is. Yeah. The culture. Yeah. But the culture, the culture is leading the church. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and, and Kevin, what we've been saying is look, these, these two tsunamis altered, the configuration of the worship of God. And we think it's time for a reformation of, of what happened. We all grew up doing this. We all grew up in, in, in the modern, you know, age segregated, you know, youth ministry subculture. We promoted it. We were involved in it. But I think one of the things that we're saying is it's, it's time to stop that because, because now you, you don't have children worshiping. God with their parents and with the others, you know, with the other mm-hmm. gifted people in the mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. God's given, uh, you know, a, a full complement of the generations in the church. And so now we separate the generations. So what, you, so, what you're saying is you're submitting to the culture and uh, accommodating the popular culture of the day, the teen culture, the social construct that's been imposed on us by the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist is going to be unhealthy for the church. It's going to be counterproductive to the ministry of the church, you believe. Well, I, it's first the, the first question isn't is it counterproductive? The first question is it is it biblical? Does yeah. it does it picture biblical patterns yeah. that you see? So, you know, whether it's effective or not, that's a whole nother question. Now we know it's not been very effective, and we know that in most mainstream churches, even today, eighty to eighty-five percent of the kids growing up in those youth groups that were attending the youth groups that were raising their hands in the youth groups that were sent there by their parents with best of motives, that they're not walking with the Lord anymore. They don't. Mm-hmm. They they've walked away from the church. So now the reason they walked away from the church is they never knew the Lord. Mm-hmm. But but they but but they were actually separated from the worship of God and the evangelization events that take place by mature preachers who are preaching to all the generations together. Got it. Got it. Okay, I'm I'm coming back to Brother Austin's podcast just for a second. I want to quote what he said. And, you know, this I think is helpful because we we can interact with what others are saying. He 
describes the family integrated movement as families come to church together in the same car, never separate, sit together in the same pew, never let your kids out of your sight, load back into the van, go home, stay there for a week, seal the bunker against the culture. Their churches have no college ministry, no youth group, no children's ministry, no VBS, no nursery, all the saints and their kids gather together. Now, is that an accurate definition? I mean, is there a hard and fast rule against all outreach to neighbor kids and are we sealed into bunkers against the culture? I'll, I'll tell you one thing, Scott. That's not me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. There's no <laughs> discipleship of young men going on in my life. You know my, that, that. But but then again, to call it a youth group, to call it a college ministry, not exactly. I mean, what I do is effectively what I believe I'm supposed to do according to Second Timothy two two, and that is for the older men. The Timothys in the churches to be discipling the younger men in order that they might be able to disciple others and become the future pastors, elders, and fathers of a congregation. So I have five to six meetings with two, three, four, five young men every day of the week. I've been doing this for 18 to 20 years of my life. And so here they are, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, 28, 29 year old young men are with me. And I'm probably working with, as I said, anywhere between 10 and 15 young men at any point in time in small groups, sometimes one-on-one, sometimes one-on-three, sometimes one-on-four. But I'm, I'm just really trying to do what Jesus did. But how does that differ from the youth group and from the college ministry and the age-segregated system that's been imposed on us? Well, yeah, I mean, we have college ministries and children's ministries. You know, the college students come into the church and they have the older men, uh, and they also have younger men and they have preachers to speak to them in their college years and children. Yeah, yeah, we have children's ministry. Uh, the children's ministry is the preacher and, and the, the children's ministry is conducted in the singing and in the praying. We're ministering to children through the prayers. They're hearing the prayers. They're singing the songs. They're, you know, watching what's going on in the church. Mm -hmm. So children are being ministered to. College students are being ministered to in a church that gathers all together. To say that there's no, no ministry to college students is a, is a little bit of an overstatement. Yeah, and there's a distinction between, you know, Paul's bringing out in Titus 2 or 2 Timothy 2, 2, and what happens in the modern church setting, where you're, you know, you're taking all the seven-year-olds away from their parents and delegating that discipleship once a week for 20 minutes to somebody who may or may not know the Word of God all that well. But uh, but they're supposed to be the one discipling the kids. That that's a far cry from yeah. what we find in Titus two. Titus two is where the older women are teaching the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. We're talking about older adult women training younger adult women. We're looking at older adult men training younger adult men and preparing them for ministry. So you do have something of a separation of the genders and that should be obvious right i'm not discipling these young ladies in the church as a as my wife or one of the elders wives does on a fairly regular basis in our church uh so you know there's a difference you, here isn't there well you have to ask did the apostle paul 
tell the church, make sure you start your college ministry. No, 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 no. Did the Apostle no. Paul uh, prescribe, well, now you need to bring your children, you know, together and and uh, you need to have you need to have children's church. Yeah. Is this biblical? Yeah. Right. Are these do these ideas arise out of scripture? Mm-hmm. No, they actually arose as a result of those two tsunamis <laughs> that were that altered the worship of God. I wonder if we're talking emphasis to some extent as well. We want to emphasize the admonitions that God gives to us and the admonition is for for youth discipleship is actually Ephesians six four. Fathers bring their children up in the nurtures and the admonitions of the Lord. The scriptures don't don't admonish us to institute Sunday schools or outreaches for ten year olds in Ephesus. It's obvious the Word of God would have the heads of households evangelized. So we find that heads of households evangelized, but for what end? To what end? That the heads of households would be faithful in discipling their children as they sit in the house. So it seems to me we've got a systemic problem, right? And not just a lack of emphasis, but a systemic issue such that we don't see that the biblical approach is the right approach, that we evangelize the heads of households, which may include Lydia down by the river in Philippi, right? But we also are interested in that once these heads of households have received the gospel that they're going to be raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. That That's the way this system works. And it seems to me that we've lost that, haven't we? Yeah, I think we, in our, in our declaration for the complementary roles of church and family, we, that's, we, we describe it as the complementary functionality of a church and a family, that they're, they're both, they're both saturating their members with the word of God. It happens at home and then it happens in the church. The Puritans believe that Richard Baxter believed that if, if you didn't, if, if it wasn't happening in the home, then it's almost impossible for the work, for the, the ministry of the word in the church to have a, a powerful impact. I think I agree with because, that. You agree with that? Well, I, I I think that the ministry of the word in the in the church is so powerful. Yes, it's, yes, it's life all it's life altering, mm-hmm. and so I think that's so critical. I think what Baxter was saying, though, is that if you if you have children who are taught the word of God six days a week, and then they go into the church, then they the preaching in the church is is so empowered. Mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. the background that yeah. those children already have. They're already moving right. in that direction. It's not right. like it's not like they're just showing up cold. Uh they're they're showing up having already been inculcated and then they hear the and then the preacher stands up and then it really is is far more meaningful to them because they have a broader context that's been affirmed for the, uh, the previous week. All right, so there's informal situations in which families come together. There's some hospitality. There's a birthday party, multiple children in the same room. There may be an informal getting together of an older pastor with a couple of the young men who are looking at perhaps being a future deacon in the church. Okay, these sorts of things going on in, in more in informal context. But let's talk about the ecclesia, the church itself coming together, 1 Corinthians 11, they're coming together. For the Lord's Supper, they're coming together in 1 Corinthians 14, again, for multiple exhortations, etc. 
So this is not an informal get-together. This is not college kids gathering on the beach. This is the ecclesia coming together. Are children from a godly family part of that ecclesia? Are they the called-out ones to that service? Are they supposed to be part of the gathering to hear the preaching of the Word of God? Is that the biblical approach here? Were children there gathered at the church at Corinth or Ephesus? Were they supposed to be part of the ecclesia? On a Sunday morning, well, yeah, they they were there in the early church, and they were and they were there all the way up until the twentieth century. Okay, you you would all you would always hear babies in the services, you know, near the turn of the century, mm-hmm. but then that disappeared by the time the century closed out. So yeah, it's it started like in in the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is addressing the children directly. He uses the vocative. Uh, of direct address and he says children obey your parents in the lord he's already talked to husband oh you husbands love your wives wives submit to your husbands you slaves you know submit to your masters he's assume the apostle is assuming that that husbands and wives and children and slaves are all in the meaning of the church they're all there that's sort of the picture of of the church all the generations are there, the old, the young, the mm-hmm. wise, the mm-hmm. foolish, mm-hmm. the rich, the poor. They're all there, and that's a generational community. And it's so essential. I, I like to say Zoom is not church, and when the Holy Spirit shows up, you know, and he pours out upon a prayer meeting, you see that in Acts 4, you see it in Acts chapter 2. What about the guy who's watching the meeting on Zoom? I'm kidding for a moment, you know, uh, obviously, you know, he's not there. And my point is that when the church gathers, there's a special time where the word of God is brought out and the, there's a presence of the spirit. There's a presence of the Lord where two or three are gathered and you're going to miss that. I, I gave this illustration to somebody once. I said, what if Jesus showed up on a Sunday morning? Like he's planning to be there next Sunday at 10 a.m. I asked these guys who maybe were a little less consistent at coming to church. I said, would you come or would you just go ahead and watch it on Zoom? If Jesus was, I mean, he was there in person, you know, and the Holy Spirit, let's just, you know, let's, let's, let's add something hey, to this. Hey, I've, what if the I, Holy Spirit I've showed up an, too? I, would, would you come so I've got and would an, you bring your kids? I've that's my an, next question. <laughs> I've got another, yeah, that's the question. That's what I, I was going to ask. Hey, if Jesus was going to come, would you bring your kids? Yeah, exactly. You know, everybody would. Would you put them in children's church saying, you know what? This is just not for you. No, no. When two or three are gathered, when the ecclesia is together, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the word of God as it's preached from that pulpit, man, we all want to be there. You want your kids there too, don't you? Get a little piece of the action. That's what I'm talking about. So what are we missing here? What's what's the modern church missing here? Well, you could you could have Jesus show up at big church, and then you could send him over to the college ministry. Then he could bounce over to the high school group. Then he could go to the junior high group. Then you can send him over to you know he he didn't end up in the nursery, but you know he he'd have to go to a lot of different yeah. rooms. But that's not the way it's been since day one, and all of that has shifted since then. Um, is Deuteronomy 6 exclusive to parental discipleship, do you think? That question, I think, arises as to the degree to which one would delegate. And 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 this is brought out, you know, like, hey, are we assuming that the parent is 
It is true that we have Jesus in the temple at 12 years of age, typically introduced one day out of 365. That's roughly 0.3% of his day-to-day interaction or instruction in in the temple. You know, that's about 0.3% uh, compared to the rest of the year. We also have the example in Scripture of Hannah delegating 100% to Eli when Samuel was adopted into Eli's household. So, you know, you got the 0.3%, you got the 100%. You, you get into these debates about, you know, to what degree do we delegate the spiritual nurture of a child? And again, it comes back to emphasis here, Scott, but when you see the Word of God is very explicit, Deuteronomy 6, 7, Ephesians 6, 4, the entire book of Proverbs places the responsibility, the obligation of the day-to-day discipleship in the hands of mothers and fathers, and somebody steps in and says, yeah, but can I just delegate 98.7% of that? Is that is that all right if I do that? What's the problem with that guy? Right. Again, you, you just have the the diminishing of one jurisdiction yeah. Yeah. for another, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the family jurisdiction is, is so clearly defined in Deuteronomy 6 and other mm-hmm. places. Right. Right. And as it, and as it turns out, uh, the jurisdiction of the church does many of the same things. They bring the word of God, mm-hmm. and they they teach the whole counsel of God in the church, just like you're supposed to do in your home. But what happened in the 20th century is the whole doctrine of the family died. Mm-hmm. Uh, fatherhood, biblical fatherhood, died in, in the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, and the 80s, and the 90s. It was really hard to find a father who is even conducting family worship. Yes. And yes. so uh, so it had died. Biblical fatherhood had died in the 20th century. I think we need to acknowledge that. The doctrine mm-hmm. of the family was lost in the mm-hmm. 20th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and thankfully, it's it's actually being recovered all over the place. Yeah, so there's reviving happening. Mm-hmm. And I do think we have to be brutally honest. I mean, if, if it's not happening, that's a problem. The Bible commands a... Six day a week, really a seven day a week teaching on the part of parents. I I do believe children should be there in the assembly of the saints, but the six to seven day a week routine has been placed in the hands of parents. Right? It seems to me that the Deuteronomy yeah. six seven says, as you sit in your house, as you wake up, as you lie down. It seems to me there's a there's a day to day integration of the word of God into your children's experience by way of family discipleship, parental discipleship. But here's the problem, Scott. That's not happening in 95 to 99% of evangelical households, according to George Barna. It's just not happening. He says one in 20 have even tried family worship. Right. I mean, so this is your issue. You have 95 to 99% of children not being discipled. So does every pastor and youth pastor have to adopt? 95 to 99% of evangelical children to their own households. Uh, Are are we in such spiritual retrograde that we're, well, maybe number one, we're not willing to face the facts that we need the Holy Spirit to come down upon fathers. We need the hearts of fathers to turn to the children and children to the fathers and to be so filled with the Word of God and the Spirit of God that these uh, parents would love God and love their children and share the word of God with their children as they sit in the house, as they walk by the way, as they rise up and as they lie down. I mean, that's what we need. But but as long as you have 95 to 99% of evangelical parents not doing this, does the church step in and say, here, let me just clue your system together and kind of make it work for now? Right. And I think, you know, the Bible is really clear about what family life should look like. And then that family should make the church the center of their life. 
you know, I wrote a book called The Family at Church, mm-hmm. you know, how parents are tour guides for joy. And, and because parents don't know how to take their children to church, they just, they just kind of drag them there and then they leave. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in that book, I'm explaining how parents can actually make, you know, the local church the most pivotal part of their week spiritually mm-hmm. and while mm-hmm. they squeeze every ounce of good out of uh, the ordinary means of grace in a local church and you know how do you bring your how do you help your children learn how to sing in the church how do you help your children learn how to hear the preaching in the church how do you help your children understand what's going on when prayers are being prayed and you know the the ordinances of the church how critical they are you, you know parents have obligations to make the Church of Jesus Christ, the institutional mm-hmm. Church of Jesus Christ, the center of their existence. Mm-hmm. And of course, their spiritual life runs all week, but there is this crescendo that takes place in a local church. And of course, you know, we've spent many years trying to convince families to make the church, the institutional church, a local church, the center of their family life, that uh, they just need to cut out whatever gets in the way of that. You really believe that this is essential element of a reformation of the church for the 21st century, don't you? I do, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But when you have when you have when you have one leg of of the chair knocked out, the the doctrine of the family, uh, you have a problem. But you also have the other leg of the chair, and that's the doctrine of the church, because because people today really minimize the importance of the local church. Right? They, they think that the local church is a convenience thing. Uh, they think that even though the elders, you know, call for various kinds of gatherings, that they can do whatever they want. You know, people really minimize the importance of a local church. So much so that the whole church almost went on Zoom, like for a year, mm-hmm. because they didn't understand what the Church of Jesus Christ actually is. And it is essential. It's the most essential institution on the planet. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to pray for a reviving of the church, and ultimately, I think a reviving of spiritual life within our families, within fathers, mothers, and then a generational reformation that will flow from that. And as you said, we need a reviving of the family as well as the church. We need a reformation at every level at this point. So what would you recommend uh, to the average pastor listening right now who, who may not consider himself to be family integrated? What, what does he do? Where does he go from here? Look at the biblical patterns and, and look, look at the scriptures. Go from Genesis to Revelation and ask yourself, do, do you see age-segmented ministry in the church? Uh, where do you see it? And rather, what do you see? Mm-hmm. So I think the, the, the Bible is our guide. The, the scripture alone is our, you know, is our guideline. And my, my view is that these, these two tsunamis that rolled over the church uh, are, are really in need of abandonment mm-hmm. uh, to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the reformation of the church is something that keeps going on. We're always being reformed. Uh, semper reformanda and i i would like to see the church apply semper reformanda to this whole age segregated generationally separated style 
of ministry. It's a new style. It's an, it was a new hip groove that happened in the 20th century. And I think it's time to walk away from it. There's no question in my mind that the traditions of men have displaced the law of God at so many different levels in just the last 30, 40, 50 years of history within the Christian church itself in the Western world. So absolutely, we need to submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, and the more fundamental issue is the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the applicability of Scripture, the relevance of Scripture. All of that needs to be restored at every single level, in our minds, in our hearts. We need to come back to the Word of God and believe the Word of God is sufficient to equip the man and woman of God for every good work. We need to dust off the Word of God as Josiah did and say, oh boy, we we have some work to do. Come back to the standards, the wisdom that God has presented to us in His Word. And we need to express the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. We need to see more and more gospel preaching within our churches and a reception of that message by ourselves and our children. Friend, that's, that's what we need. We need a revival. And let's pray for that. Let's pray for it. And uh, hopefully in this generation, we will see the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, children to the fathers, and all of us turning back to God and to the authority and sufficiency of his word. Well, friends, for more info, I encourage you to churchandfamilylife.com. That's the website, churchandfamilylife.com. Don't forget the conference is coming up April 25th to the 27th. I should be there for at least one day of that, Scott, but I want to give folks a heads up for that. That's a very important conference that brings together 1,500 people from all over the country. Great fellowship, the best teaching you're going to get in any conference in America this year. You'll find it at the Church and Family Life Conference, churchandfamilylife.com, the conference, April 25th to the 27th. Scott Brown, director, has been our guest on this edition. Scott, thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. And you have been listening to the Generations Radio Broadcast. If you'd like to interact with the radio program, email me directly at hostofkevinswanson.com. This is Kevin Swanson inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation. 